0: Praising the Lord, Jesus Christ, who's given you new life, raised your life up from the dead. Some of us have been saved for so long, or also some of us were saved in childhood, it's hard for us to remember what it was like before Christ transformed us, before He raised us to new life, brought us out of the pit. But yet some of us have the experience of remembering what it was like to live freely, though a slave. Uh, Dead in sin uh, to the great slave master. And uh, Jesus Christ is the only one who can change the leper spots, set the captive free. And we pray for salvation. We pray for souls to be saved. We pray for those opportunities. And we rejoice as those who have been set free. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, page 1217. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under a chair in the row in front of you, 1,217. Open up your Bible and prepare to walk through the Scripture together and see what God has to say to us this morning. What motivates you? You could ask you something like, what motivated you to get out of bed this morning and come to church? You said, well, my mother motivated me, my parents motivated me, my spouse motivated me. I don't even know what motivated me, but I'm here. So praise God. The bigger question is what would ever motivate you to give up your rights, your liberties, your personal freedoms? On one hand, I'm very concerned that Americans are willing to give up almost every liberty and every right and every freedom for the sake of their comfort, for the sake of their pleasure, uh, for the sake of just a little mammon from the civil government. But that's not today's message. The question is, what would lead us in the right way, as the scripture lays out for us this morning, to give your rights, your liberties, and your personal freedoms? And So we want to see what the Bible has to say in regard to that, and so we do so looking at 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 15. Before we read, let us pray together. Lord, it's not always easy to understand your word. We are creatures dependent upon your revelation to teach us, to direct us. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would make it clear what your word is saying. Also, Lord, most importantly, make it clear what the applications are for us, where we're struggling, where we are disobedient, where we are not doing what you've called us to do. So encourage us with your word to change and to be transformed that we might be the people you've called us to be in the time you've placed us. So we cry out to you, please, Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 15, we'll read through verse 23. Please follow. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will... I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law that I may share with them in its blessings. This is God's divine revelation. May we listen to it, submit ourselves to it this morning. The theme is this. Everything Paul did was for the sake of the gospel, and that should be the same for us as well. Everything Paul did was for the sake of the gospel, and that should be the same for us as well. Getting to the heart of our motivations this morning. Why did Paul do what he did what should be our motivation for all that we do? So we are in the middle of Paul addressing the issue of food offered to idols. And that topic was raised in chapter 8. He spent the whole chapter talking about it. and Then in chapter 9, he switched to defend his refusal, to switch to defend his apostolic authority. And so it's still in that context of defending himself or answering the question about food offered to idols. And in his defense of his apostolic authority, we saw last week that he had to defend his refusal to accept financial support from the Corinthians. So there were people in the Corinthian church who had refused to submit to his demand to stop attending the temple feasts of idols and eating food sacrificed to idols. And these people were denying Paul's apostolic authority to tell them what to do. And their first line of attack on his authority was that he hadn't taken any financial support from them. And other apostles and other ministers had, which raised them to the point of having greater authority. And Paul, by refusing to take any financial support, had made himself weak in their eyes, had made himself lesser in their eyes, and was not much of an apostle, if an apostle at all. And so last week we saw Paul defend himself against that attack. We're going to see him finish up his defense in the first part of our text this morning. The second attack on his authority was by pointing to his so-called hypocrisy of personally eating food sacrificed to idols in certain settings. And though it is subtle, that is what he's dealing with primarily in the second part of our text this morning. Paul had eaten food sacrificed to idols in personal settings, one-on-one settings, especially when eating with Gentiles and eating with the weak. And so now, because he ate the food in some settings, though he had told the Corinthians to not eat the food in this setting— They were now saying, well, Paul's just a hypocrite. If he eats food sacrificed to idols, why can't we go into the temple of these idols and eat the food sacrificed there? Well, Paul's going to come back to that idea in chapter 10 and finish it off. But here he is in defense mode. He's defending himself. So we're going to look at the end of his first rebuttal to their first attack and then his response to the second attack. As we walk through our passage this morning, I want you to see the contrast between Paul and the Corinthians. Now, it might be difficult if you haven't been here in a couple of weeks or you haven't heard the sermons lately to pull all of this together. And so the context is key because going back all the way to chapter 8, we're going to see the Corinthians with their rights and freedoms... And what they did with rights and freedoms. And now I want you to see what Paul did with his rights and freedoms. And I want you to keep in your mind the contrast between what they did at the end of chapter 8. And what he's talking about here at the end of chapter 9 and his use of those things. So the Corinthians clung to their rights. And those rights became a stumbling block to the gospel. They were people who had clung to their rights. They were highlighting their rights. And they had become a stumbling block to the gospel. Paul gave up his rights for the sake of the gospel. So the Corinthians clung to their liberty to the detriment of the gospel. Paul gave up his liberty for the sake of the gospel. He did it all so that others might be saved. They did it all for themselves, resulting in others walking away from Christ. And So that's what Paul is doing. He's addressing, he's demonstrating the contrast in his defense of his apostolic authority. So in verse 15, we come to this. So point one, Paul gave up his apostolic rights for what purpose? So that he may present the gospel free of charge. Paul gave up his apostolic rights so that he may present the gospel free of charge. Paul says in verse 15, I have made no use of any of these rights. Now these rights that Paul is referring to go back to the apostolic rights found in verses four through six. The right to financial support. The right to bring along a wife in ministry and have her financially supported as well. And thirdly, the right to not have to earn a living while serving as a church planter. But Paul gave up those rights for the sake of the gospel. Paul just got done defending his rights and all those rights. He says, I have all these rights. These rights are mine. The fact that I did not use them doesn't mean I don't have them. So he's defended his apostolic authority and the rights that come along with this. But now Paul says he made no use of any of these rights. And he goes on to say that he was not writing these things to secure any such provision. He didn't bring these things up to the Corinthians so that he could start drawing financial support now. So he's not saying, I didn't bring him up so you could now start sending me some checks now. And then he says that he would rather die than have anyone deprive him of his ground for boasting. In the strongest words possible, he lets the Corinthians know that there's nothing they could do to get him to take financial support. Isn't that amazing? I would rather die than take a dime from you. You're like, what is so important about not taking financial support if you have the right to do so, if other apostles did so, if other ministers did so, if this was the right thing for the Corinthian church to want to do for Paul? Why is he so adamant here? Well, he tells us, not the easiest to understand, but he does tell us. And the reason why is that Paul didn't want to lose his ground for boasting. He would rather die than have anyone support him financially, which would in some way deprive him of his ground for boasting. Then in verse 16, he goes on to talk about this boasting. But the problem is, he doesn't say what his ground for boasting is. He doesn't say what he's actually boasting in so clearly. Instead, he goes into telling us what it isn't. So Paul doesn't say what the ground is, but he tells you what the ground isn't. He says this proclaiming the gospel was nothing to boast about. Paul is saying that the ground for boasting was not simply his proclamation of the gospel. Whatever this ground is, it's not that. This is not his boast. Why not? Because preaching the gospel was a necessity for Paul. It was a compulsion. Now when we think of the word compulsion, we think of this inward drive. I have a compulsory need to do something. I have this inward desire, inward need. Paul's not using this word necessity as an inward necessity. It's an outward necessity. Paul had been called and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd been called and commissioned to preach the gospel. So preaching the gospel was his divine destiny given to him from outside. So many times we in Western civilization, especially these days, put all of our um, emphasis on the inward desires and the inward dreams and the inward compulsions and the destiny that we feel from within. That is a rather recent development in human history. Typically, your destiny was set from outside you, not from inside you. So notice, everywhere you go, everyone wants to be sure that you know that you can be anything you want to be. Any inward desire you have, any inward dream, if you believe it enough, if you work hard enough, if you go after it enough, you can be anything you want to be. And our society has taken that to the furthest extremes possible beyond human recognition. But it started, and some of you even grew up with this idea, decades ago with the simple idea that you set your own destiny. Go back and talk to anyone in the 1700s, the 1800s, the early 1900s, maybe even you, but especially maybe some of your parents. Your destiny was not determined from within. Your destiny was set from without. If you were born in Owasso, Michigan, You would grow up, you would live, and most certainly, for the most part, most of you would die right here. Your destiny was set. Where would you live? You would live right here. You would do what your father did. You would take on the family business. You would grow up to do those very things. And so you were set, your destiny was set by all of these outward factors that were determined by someone else. You might have a dream of being an astronaut, but in 1930, nobody was an astronaut. And all your dreaming and all of your desires would not get you there There was no inward destiny. Notice the Bible sets up that God determines our destiny. Our destiny is set from outside. Your decision as a Christian is not to determine what you want to do, what you have a desire to do, what your dreams and goals are, but to find out what God has created you to do and what His desire is for you and what His call and commission is in your life. And one of the best ways to determine that is by paying attention to the gifts and abilities, the strengths and weaknesses that he has given to you, by listening to the people around you who love you and who know God, and who will talk to you about what you appear to be good at, what you have skills and abilities. And God will, I believe, also put it on your heart, your desire to do certain things. That's the last piece of it. All right, so I remember as a kid growing up, you know, so you have that whole thing, some of uh, you are at that age, what do you want to be when you grow up? And well, I want to be a cowboy. But in the 1970s and 80s when I was growing up, there were no more cowboys, really. I mean, there, despite shows on TV today, there's, there's some people that try to be cowboys, but no, no, no cowboys. No more Indians to shoot off the back of a, of, a, of a horse. No more, you know, taking the cattle to market. So I wanted to be a cowboy, and then I wanted to be a fireman, and then I wanted to be a police officer, and then I didn't know what I wanted to be when it really counted. <laughs> but I tell you what, the one thing I did not want to be was a pastor amen why because my dad was a pastor and that was so normal so regular so boring so not very fun I thought maybe a mission would be fun because when the missionaries come they would set up a table in the foyer and then they'd unroll this 30-foot snake skin and I thought you know what I could do that let's go kill some snakes for Jesus I don't know so that was exciting I wanted to be a missionary pilot though I you know had no skills or abilities whatsoever towards that I just thought things would be fun Then I became a pastor and found out that being a pastor is very exciting. Uh, And uh, then I heard stories that my dad has now told me as an adult of things that were happening that I didn't know about that made him being a pastor way more exciting than I knew. And uh, the things that they kept, the things that were not shared, um, there's a lot of excitement in serving the Lord. But notice, it's not from within, it's from without. Paul's divine destiny here has been given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not preaching the gospel because he grew up wanting to be a gospel preacher because he had some inward desire to serve the Lord and and go to Athens or or to go to Rome or to go to Thessalonica and preach the gospel. He, He did not grow up with this. All of this was given to him from outside him. God had came to him. Jesus Christ came to him in the flesh and called and commissioned him to be an apostle and to take the gospel. And if you know Paul, his whole life was set up to fight against the very thing he's doing now. He was an enemy of the gospel. He was a murderer of Christians. He was, antith- you know, from the very beginning, opposed antithetically to everything the gospel stood for. And so what did God do? God came, called, and commissioned him. Why is he preaching the gospel in Corinth? Out of necessity. Out of necessity. And then he goes on to say that if he disobeyed God's call and commission, he would stand under divine judgment. He says, whoa! Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is a word that brings a curse. Cursed am I if I do not preach the gospel. So Paul says, if I take money from you, I've lost my ground for boasting. And his boast is not in the fact that he was a gospel preacher. He tells you what it isn't. And then he goes on to say that Paul didn't preach the gospel for pay. He goes on to explain what he means by this in verse 17. He says, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. He says, if I did it just because I wanted to, if I was just a volunteer for Jesus, if I had done all of these things because of my own desires, then that would be my pay. So if he preached it voluntarily, he deserved to be paid. If he was a volunteer, then the reward should be his. He would be receiving of their financial support. But if his preaching the gospel was not of his own will, if it was involuntary, then how is he acting? He's simply acting as a steward. He's simply acting as a slave who's been given a commission by his slave master. He's a slave, and what do slaves get paid? Nothing. They get room and board, and they have to do what they're told. He's just a steward. So, notice because he was called and commissioned, he had to preach the gospel out of necessity. He was simply a slave steward doing what he was called to do, commissioned to do by his master, and he was simply being faithful to the task set before him. Therefore, there was no pay for Paul. He was not a volunteer, this was his responsibility. And so, verse 18 summarizes what he's trying to say. <laughs> What then is my reward? What then is my pay? He wasn't preaching the gospel in Corinth for financial pay. He was preaching it for another reward. He answers this question, that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Here's his summary of why he doesn't receive the pay. And that is this, so by preaching the gospel free of charge and not making full use of his rights in the gospel, Paul was able to maintain his ground for boasting and enjoy his full reward. He was able to boast that by not taking any money, he could be absolutely confident that he had put no obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. This points back to what he said in verse 12. He had already given us a glimpse in the previous section about why he did not make use of the right of financial support. He did not want to put any obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That was his boast. His boast is, I've done nothing to put a stumbling block in front of the gospel. And by not taking any financial support, but presenting the gospel free of charge, he received his pay. So his boast and his pay go together. His boast and his reward, the word reward can be understood as as payment. His boast and his reward go together in this fact, that because he did it free of charge, he could boast of no obstacle. And that was his reward. That was his pay. How did Paul get paid? By being able to boast, I put nothing in the way of the gospel. And therefore, he was paid. Doesn't sound like much pay, does it? That won't buy you any food. Won't provide any shelter, won't take care of any financial need. But Paul wasn't in it for that. He was demonstrating the the fact that he could not make use of that right because his boasting, his whole entire ministry was set up on this idea that he was doing it free of charge. His pay was to receive no pay. That's my payment. My payment is you can't pay me. Ha ha. (laughs) And because he had received no financial support, notice what happens. He had total freedom from human imposition on his ministry. Because he received no support, he had no no imposition of others on his ministry. He had total freedom in the ministry. How many times have people been changed, been manipulated, been, been pushed in a certain direction because of the people who pay their way? What happens if I take a bold stand for Christ that you guys don't like? What happens if I tell you things you don't want to hear? What if I'd say it long enough, loud enough, and you all said, we've had enough of that? Out he goes. You can ask Jonathan Edwards about that. All right? If you can boot Jonathan Edwards out of your church and vote him out, you can vote me out any day of the week, twice on Sunday. Simple. So I could lose my job, I could lose my income if I do the wrong thing. How many pastors have been manipulated, motivated, changed, had their ministry set, sometimes by a very few people in a church, sometimes by one single patron in the congregation. Scary, isn't it? Paul said, guess what? Since I work to provide my financial need, guess what? No one gets to tell me what to do in the ministry, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, which, of course, every pastor, no matter who pays his bills, no matter how God pays his bills, I should put it that way, should do what the Lord Jesus Christ calls him to do, no matter the cost. But when push comes to shove, and some of you have been there in other contexts, it gets difficult to make those kinds of choices. This was his boasting. This was his freedom in gospel ministry. How great it is to have God provide all of your needs outside of the idea that those that you're ministering to, those that you're planning the church uh, with, those who are, you're, 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 you're serving and you're preaching your discipling have no influence on how you serve in the way that would control you in a way that would be in opposition to Christ. So what Paul does here, he finally finishes. He finally ends up destroying their charge that his free-of-charge gospel was a demonstration of his lack of authority. He basically says, My free of charge gospel, in one sense, elevates me to having the greatest authority. It's a freedom of authority where I only serve Christ and no other manipulation, no other control outside of that. So this is his great freedom. Now, Paul, not only being a great apostle, not only being a great Christian, not only being a great church planter, is also a great defense attorney. Just read the book of Romans if you want to see Paul in that way. He, He had a mind one of the greatest minds known to man. And so what he does here is he takes this idea of freedom, this right in the gospel, this freedom that he has, and then he moves into his second point in verse 19. Paul made himself a slave of all so that, notice the purpose statement, he might save some by the gospel. So Paul has absolute freedom to be a slave to Christ. And in his absolute freedom... Free of all imposition, free of all human uh, uh, manipulation, all of those things, what does he do with it? He takes all this freedom that he has and he surrenders it to be a slave to the people he's seeking to reach with the gospel. We'll talk about what this means. Now, I want to tie this together. So, I want you to see back in chapter 9, verse 1, the questions that Paul began this chapter with. He has adequately answered the second question Am I not an apostle? So he spent all this time up to verse 19 answering that question primarily. Am I not an apostle? Now he gives the answer to the first question, am I not free? He starts off by saying, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? He's answered the apostle part. He is definitely an apostle with all apostolic authority. They must submit to his commands. Am I not free? Well, now he comes to this one. So by presenting the gospel free of charge, Paul has made himself free from all people. The free-of-charge gospel has made him free from all people. So what does he do? Well, here's Paul's action. While being absolutely free, he freely chose to make himself a slave to all. While being absolutely free, he freely chose to make himself a slave to all. Because Paul is financially independent, he is free from any restrictions that come from financial support, any outside control, any manipulation by people that he owes He owes his living to, or he needs to pay back. Yet, what did he do with his financial independence? He chose to set aside his rights, his freedoms, and become a slave to others. Now, why would you want to be financially independent? In my financial independence, I would like to become a slave. So you work your whole life, you work your whole life, you set aside your 401k, your well, you're all your retirement, you've got all this, you said it, do, find that financial independence so that you can do what? Become a slave? No, so I can live freely, don't have to work, have all my needs taken care of, I can do whatever I want, I can travel the world, whatever these things are. Paul says, I'm financially independent, so what do I do with that? How about we become a slave of some people? <laughs> this sounds messed up, doesn't it? Well, I think as Americans, we have to understand what this means. What's his motivation? That was Paul's action. Paul's motivation is this, that he might win more converts. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. Now, the word win is synonymous with the word save down in verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Win some, save some. It's the same idea. Now, win points to the idea of conversion. Winning people over to your side of an argument. Winning people over to see who Jesus Christ is as the only Lord and Savior, the only hope of mankind. And and some of us understand that term because we grew up in church and we talked about winning souls or winning people to Christ all the time. We know what that means. Some of you, that might be a weird word. And so we hear the word save more often. Save points to the idea of rescue. Saving people from the penalty of their sins. Saving people from the wrath of God and eternal punishment in the lake of fire. So winning them and saving them is synonymous in this case. We want to convert them to the truth. We want to save them from the penalty of being a sinner. We want to save them to new life in Christ. And so this is what Paul's doing. This is gospel evangelistic ministry. This is his motivation. He wants to see people won to Christ. He wants to see people saved. He wants to see as many people saved as possible. This is why he does what he does. Now notice who he wants to save. He wanted to win Jews, those under the law. He wanted to win Gentiles, those outside the law. He wanted to win the weak. How badly did he want to see all these people saved? If we were to take a quiz, I would say, do we want to see people saved? Yes. How badly do we want to see people saved? Oh, badly. How badly? So badly. Well, Paul isn't just answering a theological quiz or raising his hand to make a decision in church. He's putting his money where his mouth is, and we have to see what that looks like. So how badly does he want to see these people saved? So he gives an explanation to give an illustration to explain himself. And don't forget, all of this is done in defense of his actions in Corinth that are being used against him. He's being called a hypocrite. And now he's explaining why he ate food sacrificed to idols when he was with Gentile people or with those who are weak or didn't eat it with with those who are weak. So he's going to explain his actions of why it might have looked like he was hypocritical, sometimes eating, sometimes not, this setting eating, this setting not. Now Paul gives his explanation. And he says this, he gave up his freedom from following Jewish customs. He says in verse twenty, to the Jews I became as a Jew. He gave up his freedom from following Jewish customs. Now, I think most of you are aware that Paul was ethnically a Jew, yet in becoming a Christian, he had set aside Jewish religious peculiarities. Circumcision no longer had uh, an importance in his life. Food laws no longer were followed. Special observances, the Sabbath days, the holy days. He was free from following those Jewish customs. Paul, as a Christian, no longer followed the Jewish law By having to maintain those things. In coming to Christ, he was able to put all of those things aside. He no longer had to do them. But in trying to win Jews, what did he do? He willingly yielded once again to those very customs. I want to win Jewish people, so I take all the freedoms. I can eat whatever I want. I mean, can you imagine the first time he had a pork chop? I mean the first time Paul had a piece of bacon. I mean, it must have been a glorious day. And now he says, I want to see Jews saved. I got to give up all my bacon to save Jews. I, I to, and now I have to keep the Sabbath, I have to keep Saturday Sabbath. I have to, I have to keep these holy days. I have to put aside, I have to, I have to put aside, I had to give up liberties to win these people. So to do that, he, he willingly yielded once again to the Jewish customs. He makes it more explicit in the next statement. He became as one under the law. To those under the law, those are the Jewish people still following the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law, I became as one under that law, that I might win those under the law. He willingly put himself back under all the dietary restrictions, the Sabbath and feast requirements. But notice Paul breaks up his argument in two places with some caveats to make sure you don't misunderstand what he's saying. So you can just simply say his argument, to win the Jews, he became as a Jew. To win those under the law, he became as one under the law, that he might win those under the law. To those outside the law, without the law, he became as one outside the law to win those outside the law. But then he has, the the parentheses are nice in the English translations. He puts some caveats in here. So here's the first place he puts a caveat. Though not being myself under the law. So he became as one under the law, as is very vital to the, the argument. Paul was saved from the need to keep the ceremonial aspects of the law. He was no longer under the law, all aspects of the law, as a requirement to be a God follower, a God fearer, a, what we would call a Christian today. He did not have to do those things any longer. He was free from that. That's why we as Christians are also free from all of those, those laws in the Old Testament having to do with this aspect of the law. All of the ceremonial customs the peculiarities of what set jewish people apart from gentile people was set aside in christ and he's not under that law any longer but to win them what did he do he gave up his freedom and went back under those restrictions not because he had to for his salvation but because he wanted to see them saved now also notice this so he's not explicit with this There's no way that Paul could go back under those restrictions while teaching them that they had to keep them to be saved. If you want to read this argument, read the entire book of Galatians. Because Paul went to bat, I mean, he, he, he faced Peter face to face for accusing Peter of doing this very thing, of accommodating the gospel to the old covenant restrictions that were no longer there. So he's not going to go to the Jewish people and say, oh, by the way, I'm free, but you as Jews need to keep these, all these laws to be saved. No, he did not say that. He simply went along with those customs as to put no stumbling block in the way of the gospel. So here's what he did. Paul was invited to the barbecue at the Jewish person's house. In Corinth, he's invited to the barbecue. So what does he not show up with? Pork chops. He brings lamb chops. Now, could he bring pork chops? Yeah, he's free to bring pork chops. Throw them on the grill. I eat pork. I used to be a Jew. I'm no longer a Jew. I'm a Christian. I'm set free. All of you Jewish people can be set free. You can eat pork with me. How about today? Convert and be saved today. He didn't do that. He, he, He went willingly back in. I can eat lamb all day long. I can go back under these restrictions all day long. I can give up my freedom to win people. I am going to put no stumbling block to the gospel. Now, secondly, he gave up his freedom to follow Jewish customs. He gave, now, notice the prepositions are important. He gave up his freedom from following Jewish customs, and he gave up his freedom to follow Jewish customs. How about you're a Jewish convert who likes all of those customs? You like the special days. You like the, the diet restrictions. You like not eating pork. You, you like all of those things. And you say, I know I'm a Christian, but I still want to follow that Old Covenant law, not because I have to, not because it it earns me righteousness with with God, but because I I like being ethnically a Jew and culturally a Jew. I want to do all those things. And then someone says, well, how are you going to win your Gentile neighbor? He's invited you over for dinner, and he put pork chops on the grill. I go over there and I say, you know what? I, I really can't eat this because I don't eat pork. Now, by the way, that's not the same thing as people who can't eat gluten because they're celiac. But as people who can't eat gluten just because they don't like eating gluten, all right? There's a difference between not eating something by necessity uh, or eating something, not eating something because you have a personal favor or a personal priority or preference. So that Jewish Christian who, in his own home, doesn't eat any pork, what would he do when he's invited to the Gentile neighbor's barbecue? He gives up his freedom to be Jewish ethnically for the sake of the gospel. You dig in, you eat the pork chop, and you see how great it tastes. Do you think it tastes great to someone who doesn't like pork, to eat pork? It's like when you go to someone's house, they say, here, let's me put the vegetables on your plate. Well, I don't like asparagus. Well, la-di-da, eat it anyway, don't say a word. Right? I was taught, because my parents were in the ministry, my dad's a pastor, I was taught, you eat what they put on your plate. And Man, when I, I was a picky eater. I mean, I was a really picky eater. They when went to people's houses, they put something on the plate. Now, if you had a chance to not get it on the plate, you could try to do that. Like, no, thank you. How about no thank you helping? A little spoon, please, as small as possible. So I understand this. But when I'm in someone's house and I don't like what they're going to serve me, what do I do? I eat it anyway, especially if they're an unbeliever, especially if I'm trying to win them for Christ, especially if I want to see them saved. I don't let these things get in the way. Thank you very much. I can give up my freedom to have my own particular diet when I'm at an unbeliever's house, even if I follow these customs in my own house. So Paul would put away all of the dietary restrictions that he grew up with. He would eat whatever was put in front of him, no matter how much it went against all of his upbringing and culture. Now, there are some things that you might find appealing that you always, as a Jew, grew up wanting to eat. Again, like bacon. Every Jew wants to eat bacon someday, I'm sure. But some of the other things that were restricted, no one wants to eat these other gross things. They're still gross. But if the Gentile decides to put something I still find gross on my plate, what am I going to do? I'm not going to claim Jewish ethnicity to get out of it. That's the point. He gave that up. Now notice he makes again another necessary qualification. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Understand this very carefully. He didn't violate any of God's moral or judicial law. We're talking about the ceremonial laws, the distinctions that were made by uh, Jewish custom that separated the people and made them set apart. The clothes they wear, the different cloths, those kinds of things, they set those things apart. He continued to follow the law of God. He wasn't outside the law of God. He was still inside God's law. And then there's a contrast, but under the law of Christ. It's interesting that his contrast really isn't a contrast. He was inside the law of God and under the law of Christ. Because the law of Christ continues to uphold the law of God in the Old Testament, not the ceremonial law, but the the moral and judicial law is still upheld, as Christ summarized the Old Testament law this way, the law of Christ, which is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's not a new law. That's a summary of the Old Testament moral law. And so he's not outside the law of God, as if no more law for Paul. He does whatever he wants. The Ten Commandments don't apply. Oh, it's the law of Christ. It's the law of love. What's the law of love explained? Well, love the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. What about the law of neighbor? Um, don't murder your neighbor. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal your neighbor's stuff. That's love. So this is how it's laid out. He, he doesn't violate any of that in this putting away his freedoms. So when he's with the Gentiles, he's not going to break the law of God. He's going to keep the law of God, especially as it is laid out in the law of Christ, which is the law of love. So Paul didn't become lawless in his evangelistic zeal. You might want to write that down. This is where many Christians miss it. They take this passage and they use it to be lawless under the guise of evangelistic zeal. So, Well, we'll get there in a minute. I want to get through the text. And this point right here with the Gentiles is where Paul was being attacked by the Corinthians. He had told them not to eat meat in an idol's temple in a temple worship service. And they said, well, we've seen Paul eat meat sacrificed to idols many times. And he says, where? Well, when you were eating with Gentiles. He says, yep, I did it all for the sake of the gospel. I didn't do it to uphold my rights. I did it giving up my rights. The Corinthians were going into the the idol's temples and eating the meat sacrificed there to encourage their rights, to liberate themselves. They were doing it selfishly. Paul is doing this unselfishly. And they say, well, you're just a hypocrite. He says, no, here's why. And then thirdly, he gives the third caveat. He gave up his freedom to be strong. To the weak, he became weak, which means he gave up his freedom to be strong. Now, Paul has defined back in chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, who the weak are. And I think bringing up the weak here is Paul making sure they don't miss that he's addressing the very same subject as he was back in chapter 8. He's addressing meat offered to idols, eating it or not eating it, whether you're weak or whether you're strong. And Paul can eat meat, sacrificed to idols all day long. His conscience doesn't bother him all. He's a strong Christian. But he gave up his, his freedom to be strong when he was with the weak. Because he wants to win whom? The weak. And if you have a conscience, whether as a Christian or a non-Christian, against eating meat offered to idols, I can give up that liberty all day long for the sake of the gospel. But the people at Corinth, the ones who were denying Paul or not obeying Paul, were not giving up that liberty. They were encouraging their liberty. They They were running away with their liberty. They were highlighting their liberty because they can eat whatever they want, and they wanted to make sure everybody knew it, and they wanted to live in that liberty. Paul didn't. He gave it up for the sake of the gospel. So Paul's summary is found there in verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That's the summary of this whole section. He gave up his personal liberties to reach all people. Whoever he was with, whoever he was trying to reach with the gospel, he would become like them through giving up all of his personal liberties. He did it all without breaking God's law, or by giving them any impression that they were right in their own actions. It wasn't about supporting them that they were right or that this was necessary. It was about taking away any stumbling block to his own gospel evangelism. Some of you would be aware of a man named Hudson Taylor, the groundbreaking ministry, uh, missionary to China, who began what was then known as China Inland Mission. And he is probably the best example, contemporary example of this very point. As a missionary to the Chinese... He learned the Chinese language. He dressed as a Chinese person. He even grew his hair into the traditional pigtail of a Chinese man. He ate Chinese food. He gave up all of his liberties to be the Englishman that he was. I don't know. Would I grow a pigtail for the gospel? I mean, you tell me. So, now what I want to say here is this. I want to be clear here. It's it's hard to be clear and to be succinct and to be short. As long as they're posting things. Here's what I'm saying Hudson Taylor did not grow up as a little boy wishing he could be a Chinese person. He did not grow up wishing he'd wear Chinese clothes and have a pigtail and eat Chinese food all the time. He did not grow up at the Chinese buffet down the street and go down there envying all the Chinese people wanting to be a Chinese person. So that he went to China so that he could in, indulge his desires and personal wishes. He went to China as an Englishman, and while he was there, his, at the early parts of his ministry, he walked around trying to win the Chinese people as an Englishman. He would wear his great black overcoat, and everywhere he went, he became known by the Chinese as the black devil because of his great black overcoat. Maybe it was cold in China. Maybe the coat was warm. Maybe he just liked big coats. You know, some of you people like what you like to wear, your fashions, and all those things. And so, later in his ministry, because his ministry was having very little effect, people were not listening to him. They were not giving him the time of day to even get to the gospel because he, he, was not, he was offensive in a certain way to them just in the way he dressed, the way he talked, the way he did certain things. So he had little reception among the Chinese. So then he changed his methods to gain an audience without causing a disturbance. Now this is a quote from Wikipedia. All right? I don't usually quote Wikipedia, but I want you to know where I get this. I love this quote. I don't know who to give credence to. He changed his methods to gain an audience without causing a disturbance. Notice the fact he's not there just doing all the fun things he always wanted to do, but couldn't do as an Englishman. Now he gets all these liberties and freedoms he gets to do in China. No, he didn't want to cause a disturbance. He wanted to gain an audience and not put an obstacle. And so he did those things for the sake of the gospel. His arguments for his methods, because people attacked him for his methods, is this very passage we're in today. He defended his actions out of 1 Corinthians 9, um, 19-23. to Because there were many English people who did not believe that you should uh, all, even learn the Chinese language. You should not, maybe not even translate the Bible into Chinese language. He did that. You don't definitely don't want to dress like a Chinese person. You want to maintain the biblical moral standards of a Christian culture that the Englishman had. Sound familiar? So you wouldn't give up those cultural things for the sake of the gospel. I want you to hear what he wrote his sister as he was serving the Lord in China. He's an Englishman, so you can hear some English words. If I had a thousand pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, no. Not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? Why? Why did he do what he did? To save souls, to win souls to Christ. So in conclusion, and we can gather around the table. This will be a longer conclusion, so don't get too excited. Usually I say in conclusion, it's real short. I'm just warning you, this isn't a short conclusion do everything for the sake of the gospel. Christian, do everything for the sake of the gospel. Here's what I don't want you to hear. I really wrestled all week with trying to figure out how to figure out how not to abuse this passage because I think there are many, many Christians who are abusing this passage by Paul. Do do all things become all things to all people that you might win some. And what that means for some Christians is everything my parents wouldn't let me do because I was a fine, upstanding, conservative, orthodox, Baptist, independent, fundamental Christian. So I couldn't listen to any music with a drum beat. I couldn't go to the dances. I couldn't have a tattoo. I couldn't drink alcohol. I couldn't do all those things. All those things I wanted to do and I couldn't do as I was raised, guess what? I found a passage that said, for the sake of the gospel, I can do all those things. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to grow up and become a Christian. I'm going to plant the first biker church of Corona. And I'm going to grow my hair long because I couldn't have long hair. I'm going to put on all the tattoos. I'm going to drink all the alcohol I can. I'm going to go hang out at biker bars. I'm going to become a biker to win the bikers. Do you, do you just at the, at the, on the surface find something somewhat wrong with that? I was trying to figure out a way to, to explain what, is, what Paul's doing that differs from what so many Christians have done. Trying to reach people and using this passage as an excuse to do all of the things they weren't allowed to do. All the things they wanted to do but couldn't find the excuse to do. So I, I, thought, I thought of it this way. Hopefully it's good. I, I struggled and maybe it's not very good. Maybe some, you know, 20 years from now I'll, I'll, do, I'll know it better. Paul did not go to China to reach the opium addicts by going into the opium dens and taking opium. In fact, he did all he could to shut down the opium trade. He did not go to China to win a particular subculture of China. He didn't go to China to win the subculture of prostitutes or whatever might be there by, by doing these things, of all the things he wanted to do. In our multicultural even though I don't like that that much, but in our society, it's multicultural. We get this idea that somehow, as an American, we have to somehow change ourselves to fit in with subcultures. That's where this is abused. To reach the bikers, I must become a biker. No, the biker speaks English. The biker can read an English Bible. The biker understands all of the customs. You know the customs. You don't have to get 40 tattoos, grow your hair long, you know, put a pigtail in your beard. <laughs> and and join the biker gang. No, you don't have to do that. Because we share a culture. We don't have to reach all of these, what I would call in some ways, sinful subcultures. I don't have to become a cowboy to win the cowboy. I'm an American. He's an American. We speak English. We have an English Bible. I can understand the cowboy culture. I can go over there and eat all the steak on the grill all, all day long. I don't have to tell them about eating vegetables. We can ride horses. That's great. But I don't have to do anything else. There's an abuse here. So watch the abuse. And yet, here's the point. Do everything for the sake of the gospel. What what personal preferences, issues, whatever it is, are you holding on to that are limiting your evangelistic efforts with lost people? Things that do not violate God's law, things that aren't caving in and accommodating the gospel message to anything that's wrong, these are difficult questions because the positive is harder to see. And it's easier to see with food and dress and things like that. See, what, what, what Hudson Taylor did is he didn't go to China and become immodest. He changed his clothes in a way that he was still able to fulfill the law of modesty while reaching Chinese people. So I don't say, you know what, I want to reach the beach scene in Florida. So let me go get the skimpiest bikini and go reach the, the unsaved on the beach. No, he wouldn't do that. That would be a violation. That would be me wanting to have more liberties and 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 revel in my liberties, and that would actually cause a stumbling block to the gospel because when you're dressing like the world and acting like the world in sinful ways, in immodest ways, and then by the way, all of a sudden you say, by the way, do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And they, they look and you say, what? You're a Christian? There's nothing about you that looks like that appears. And now I'm not saying to hold to that other standard, but I'm trying to give you some very practical ways. And when I say this also, I want to, Change text a little bit here. When I'm saying do everything for the sake of the gospel, I'm not saying everyone in here should be a missionary or a pastor or serve the Lord full-time. I'm saying this. This is a call for us to lay down our personal rights, liberties, and freedom for the sake of the gospel in every area of life. So this will change how you behave in your marriage, even if you're married to a believer. Be married for the sake of the gospel. Have your marriage glorify God in such a way that unbelievers will see it and will give you credence to the gospel message you're going to say. So many of us are not living for the sake of the gospel in our marriages. We're fighting, we're bickering, we're arguing, we're at odds, and then we go around trying to win the lost, preach the gospel, when our, our very personal life and our very relationships with our spouses demonstrate the lack of gospel power and transformation. So get right with your spouse For the sake of the gospel, not for your own personal gain, though it will be to your personal gain. So this changes your marriage. It changes how you parent. Parent for the sake of the gospel. Not just for the salvation of your kids, of course for the salvation of your kids, but for the salvation of those around you. The kids that your kids know. Be the kind of parent that gives glory to the gospel. Do it for the sake of the gospel. This will change how you behave at work. Whether you're a mechanic, whether you put in uh, sound systems, or whether you're a painter, no matter what you might do, whether you're a plumber, whether you're an engineer, whatever it is, this will change how you work, how you behave at work, because you're working for the sake of the gospel. I don't want anything about how I work, how I live my life to be a stumbling block to the gospel. I don't want to be a lazy employee. I don't want to be someone who shows up late, who, who steals time from the boss, who, who's crude or crass or rude or lives like the world in a way that would uh, put a stumbling block to the gospel. I want someone who sees me to come up to me and Lord willing say, are you a Christian? You seem to live like what I think a Christian would live like. And you can also be explicit with it. But you want a life that when you then share the gospel, you have that life behind it. Now, don't take very long to share it. But you have that life. How you live at work is a glory to the gospel. You're doing it for the sake of the gospel. You want to convert people at your work, at your school, at your, there's a homeschool. Convert people at your homeschool co-op. Convert people. You want to see people saved in your neighborhood. You want everything you do for the progress and the increase of the gospel. So we don't live a life where 95% of our life is lived outside the four walls of the church and we live that for ourselves. And Then I give God that 5% or 10% of going to church and, and putting some money in the plate and doing something like that and then it's all separated. No, all of it's together. Everything I do for the sake of the gospel. And therefore, I'll put away my personal rights and liberties and freedoms to serve others. I don't know what that means in your life. So if you have questions, challenges, this is what we want to do. Now notice Paul's, I'm not done yet, so notice Paul does it all for the sake of the gospel. Verse 23, you probably closed your Bible. Here's what he says at the very end, that I may share with them in its blessings. I want to share with those who believe, share with those who win to Christ in the blessings of the gospel. We want to see people saved because we want to share with them in the glories of the blessings of the gospel as they come to Christ and as their lives are changed. New believers, people whose lives are radically changed. I if, And if I go in a sinful way just to preserve my rights and liberties, to do all the fun stuff I couldn't do because I was a Christian, and glory in that, and I use the gospel as an excuse to do that, I will never really want to see people saved because I won't, won't want to see them saved out of that lifestyle to a lifestyle that would glorify God. I want them to stay in that lifestyle with me in a way that would be a detriment to the gospel, a stumbling block to the gospel, and they'll leave Christ and go back to their old lifestyle. You've got to see it. And I I wish I could paint a better picture. May God help you. But this is why we evangelize at the farmer's market. This is why we hand out tracts at parades and football games. This is why we speak at the city council. This is why we attend school board meetings. This is why we run for public office. We do everything for the sake of the gospel. If gospel is not your motivation, then you need to change motivations, and you have to be willing to sacrifice personal freedoms and liberties for the sake of the gospel. Go ahead and throw up the slide, Parker, on what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life you could not and had not lived, died the sacrificial death in the place of sinners. His death satisfies the wrath of God and grants the gift of forgiveness to all who trust in Christ alone. Next slide. The proof of that truth is that Jesus Christ rose again after three days in the tomb. The tomb is empty. Our Savior lives. If you're not a Christian, repent and believe in this gospel and you will be transformed you will be saved you will be one to Christ this is why we're here this is why we preach this is why we do what we do i, I just want to be i just want to be straightforward here i don't like going down to the city council meetings i don't like it i prefer not to do it every time i every time there's a meeting i try to figure up an excuse to not be able to go i don't like speaking in the city council meeting i don't like seeing my name in the paper I don't want people talking about me or thinking about me or addressing me in the third person or whatever. I don't enjoy this. It's not fun. But I do it all for the sake of the gospel when I do it for the right motivations. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. We are too comfortable. We are too wealthy. We are too settled. We are too satisfied. We have too much free time. We do not yet know what it's like to sacrifice our freedoms, our liberties, our personal preferences for the sake of the gospel. May God challenge each one of us to find that place, to, to challenge us where we, we are doing these things that are in the way, a stumbling block to the gospel. I'm not saying everyone; it's not going to look the same in everyone's life. We're not all doing the same things. May God direct you personally in that approach. And the reason we do that is for the news of the gospel, which is why we don't just want to see biblical morality lived out in our culture, though we do. We want to see people saved and transformed to want to submit to that biblical, that biblical morality and put it into law so that we can all enjoy the fruits of the gospel, the progress of the gospel in the civil sphere. So we have to learn how to live, how to do that. And so we've come today to gather around the Lord's table as a demonstration of the center centeredness of the gospel in our church, the centeredness of the gospel in our lives. We remind ourselves of why we are what we are, Why we're saved, how it worked, what God has done for us by gathering around the Lord's Supper. So, if you're a Christian this morning, you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, we invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper with us if you've been baptized as a believer. So, as a believer that's been baptized, celebrate with us. If not, just let the elements pass. But we know what the gospel is, and God has transformed us. Don't we want to see more people around the table? Do we want to see more people around the table? What's it going to take? What sacrifices will we have to make to see this church building filled with people gathering around the table with us in Christ because God has saved their souls. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.